Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is controlled by the War Operation Plan Response Supercomputer, because you don't actually control anything. Welcome back to The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions and speculates about the answers without, without ever uh, coming to any real conclusions. With your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. Today is part three of our discussion of video games. We're going to do yet another update <laughs> on the Fortnite dance case, which keeps changing from underneath our feet. Are people not tired of video games yet? Oh yeah, this is a podcast for geeks. Of course we're not tired of video games Never. yet. And we're going to talk about the uh, the original NES control pad patent um, and, uh, and some other interesting things. So welcome back. This is, like we said, part three. Uh, we had originally not intended to do even a part two on video games, but there was just so much to cover here. Yeah, there ended up being a lot of things. Now we also deviated a few places and wandered around. But <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, that's as per the norm. Um, a, couple, a couple interesting things that happened before we get into the... Um, you know, the substance of this. One is, uh, Kirk, the Oscars. Yep, the Oscars happened. They happened. and uh, Without a host. Black Panther won a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Which is really kind of surprising, <laughs> although I have to admit that it frankly deserved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's only surprising because comic book movies don't traditionally play that well with the Oscars. It's not seen as yeah. being serious enough. Well, I think as, as we've encountered, you know, from other podcasts we listen to, you know, there's a lot of discussion of if you want to win an Oscar, you make a docudrama. Yeah. Um, you know, or something similar in conjunction with it. And I think there is a lot of, you know, formulaic Oscar-type movies. Well, you, you got to make something that the Academy's not going to feel self-conscious voting for. Have yeah. people say, wait, are you in the movies or are you not? Although, one could say, were they self-conscious voting for Green Book? But, uh... You know, a whole other question. <laughs> but, you know, Black, Black Panther's interesting because I, I think the... The political and social context of the film, combined with it just being a really good movie, yeah, it was a extremely um, good movie. Uh, gave gave the Academy a little more cover to be, um, to, you know, to kind of go outside of the usual box of of what they vote for. Yeah, I mean, it's not like this is unprecedented. I mean, we saw no. it with Lord of the Rings, um, yeah. you know, Turn to the King. Obviously, you but know, like won. I think it, it won in categories we don't normally see. Right? We were talking before uh, the the mics went live that movies like this typically win, you know, costume or something like that. Yep. Uh, but we thought I think I think it won costume this year. Yeah, and I, I think it did win costume. At least I hope it won costume, and it's I think it well deserved costume, even if it didn't win. Um, but because because um, usually the costume Oscar goes to you know like a historical you know or a biopic or something like that. Yeah, something docudrama, docudrama, something <laughs> historical and weighty and serious about somebody that we've probably never heard of, or maybe we have heard of, but it's an excuse for people to get expensive fabric and, and dress up in you know seventeenth century clothing. <laughs> yeah. But we were, we were just talking like. Black Panther is actually harder to do in a lot of ways because there's no there's no model for it. There's no yeah. there's no text to go consult and say how did people dress. We're taking uh, traditional African clothing and then projecting it forward into this super advanced society. What does it look like? How does it change? Yeah. And it, it still needs to be recognizable, but it can't yeah. be traditional. It needs to look modernized. Yeah. It needs to be particularly functional. I mean, we're talking about like battle dress, you know, stuff yeah. like that, where it's this isn't just ceremonial. This is something that needs to be very functional. Have it make logical sense. And that's, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show before, but I used to do theater tech. And I joke about it, sort of repeat, I did a lot of light design, a lot of sound design, some set design. I never really did costumes, and the reason I never yeah, really either. did costumes is because I was terrible at it. Yep, same um, here. Because it, trying to come up with costumes can be extraordinarily difficult. I worked with some incredibly talented people that are good at coming up with costumes and just thinking about how to do costumes. Um, but I, I really think that it's... Oftentimes, these technical awards really get glossed over by the Oscars, and we forget how important they are. You were talking about, again, before the mics went live, how bad lighting design can really screw up a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, you have something where it's like, oh, this is inside. You know, there's the running joke of the how a single lighter can light an entire room because mm -hmm. it has to so you can see what the actors are doing. But making that look right still requires you to do it correctly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's a lot of weird places where, you know, you can get into, hey, depending on where you're filming, if you're on a soundstage, if you're outdoors, sort of stuff like that, making sure you get these things right can be a big deal. And it's not so much that getting it right 
makes the movie better. It's getting it wrong makes the movie far, yeah, far worse. It ruins your suspension of disbelief. And yeah. the example I gave, so Empire Strikes Back, uh, the Dagobah scenes, I think all take place on a soundstage somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, I, although I know that in the back of my head, and there's a couple spots where you can kind of tell... For the most part, I don't really notice. Like the narrative moves along quickly yep. enough, the the story is interesting enough, and the set design and the lighting are done well enough that I can convince myself that he's on a, on a swamp planet. Yep. Compare that to the opening sequence in um, uh, what was episode seven called? I just blanked on it. Uh, <laughs> shoot, not the last. Uh, Force Awakens. Yeah, the Force Awakens. When they're on Jakku and the stormtroopers arrive, th- that just feels like a soundstage to me. I, I, I'm just they're in a studio with the with the, you know a black backdrop. Because there's no stars, it doesn't feel open. Like the the echoing is weird, the sound design is weird. That whole sequence yeah. just falls down for me because of that. And it is it's one of those things where again, I, I think that you know there, there was a lot of comments this year about like dropping talks for tops from the Oscars and primarily technical Oscars and things like that. A lot of these things make and break movies, and they, they do. really do. You know, editing can completely make and break a movie. Well, you know why? Yeah. Because th- these are the things that, if they're done successfully, you don't notice them. Yeah. It's not like acting, where when someone's doing a great job, you're just like, wow, what a performance. But the makeup, you only notice if they suck at it. <laughs> yeah, though you do notice sometimes if it's very good, depending yeah. on what it is. But that's where I think, like, costuming is a great example, because I think a lot of times the reason the historical cases win, and, like, I've talked with a friend of mine who does makeup, who did fairly professional theater makeup um, and did costume. And she always used to comment about the makeup, and she said, it's hard to do makeup to make somebody look like a normal person. It's mm-hmm. very easy to make them look like an alien. Yeah. Even though the makeup requirements of looking like an alien are dramatically more increased, it's a relatively easy thing to do because there's so little reference material. Yep. And I think that's why you get so much of the docudramas, the, the historical costumes winning, is it's, oh, look how accurate this is. Mm-hmm. Look how well it's portrayed as to that this is really what the things should look like and they're really well done. Versus the idea of somebody looking at it and saying, look how creative this is. You know, it's if I need to film a World War II movie, you know, I can go down to a museum and look at the actual uniform. Yeah, you know what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, you know exactly what it's supposed to look like. I can probably even get accurate cloths. You know, I can get components that yeah. can be made and cast and directly done it's from it. It's not going to look like it's made out of modern synthetics and stuff yeah. like that. You can do that. Whereas when I need to, um, you know, make, you know, Black Panther's costume, yeah, what does Black start? Panther look like? I yeah. need something that's functional. He's got to be able to move and look like a cat in some respects. Well, this is the Star Trek problem too, right? Like when they just, like the next generation was famous for having ludicrously uh, impractical costumes and like well, for some reason all the sheets are made of mylar I never understood that <laughs> yeah <laughs> the next generation and they wear weird clothes and like it was just making it look futuristic for the sake of it never yeah. mind that you know other than you know breathability and stuff like that <laughs> we, the technology of textiles is ancient we don't need to how much are they going to improve on it yeah. in the next 300 years to where Actually, everything's going to look like mylar the best one of those I still think you want to talk about like bad costume design I'm trying to make it look futuristic go no further than Moonraker <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just leave it there of the idea of how badly you can screw up costumes of just trying to make them look futuristic. Um, and, and I think there, there is something relevant to that and the idea of saying, you know, we have this thing in movies at times where we just make things modern mm-hmm. to make it clear that it's a science fiction movie. Yeah. Um, you know, which is kind of weird in many respects. You know, it's... It, like, it, the Starship Enterprise is a perfect example. Like, all, there's no square corners. Everything's round. Why not? It's so expensive and impractical. Yeah. Uh, no, admittedly, there's there's things to be said for certain rounds for cleanliness and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of things that just make no sense in conjunction with it. But then you also get the fun ones where they like combine almost the the modern with the anachronistic. Like I'm thinking like the most recent Battlestar Galactica, which still had phone handsets. Yeah, it didn't have wireless phones. Yeah, they don't have wireless phones. At the same time, it works in there because it's kind of this idea that it's this kind of slightly dystopian future. Yeah, and it's, it's submarines, basically. Yeah, it's a submarine, that kind of thing. So it's... So, it's, I think, again, there's so much to be said for, like, you know, technical stuff, making and breaking a movie, making and breaking a TV show. Well, it's how subtly you can work these elements into where the audience doesn't really notice. Like, Battlestar Galactica, when I first saw that, the, this is the new version we're talking about. Yeah, the newest about. version. Uh it's it's all just done like sort of conventional naval warships that happen to be spaceships. Yeah. And other than like the jumping technology and whatnot, uh, the 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 people who are on the show just kind of treat the ships like any other kind of ship. And so when the phone rings and someone picks it up and says Galactica Actual, it's it's all done seriously. It's all played straight. It, you know, the actors don't show any awareness of how silly it looks. Yeah. And if if you can do that convincingly, and this is part of a, a combination of technical aspects, directing and acting, 
you know, then then you make the audience suspend their disbelief and they just accept this as the reality of how this universe works, even though it makes no sense. Yeah. Well, particularly, I think when you get into slightly dystopian universes, which obviously Battlestar Galactica is. Yeah. You know, it's not the the everything's perfect universe, but you know, if we really want to get into sort of you know like set design and the concept of how a universe looks, I mean, let's go. Let's talk Blade Runner. Yeah. You know, and you know, Blade Runner has many things about it which. You know, today's day and age, there's no way that's the future. Yeah, it's, it's highly, it's a very environmental film. Yeah, but it's also because of the environment when it was made. You know, I mean, Pan Am was a big airline, yeah. so that's why Pan Am is dominant in the movie. Which obviously, if we look at it and say we're projecting that forward to that yeah, day today, is totally meaningless. Did you see the new one, by the way? With I have Ryan not Gosling? seen the new one. And I really they preserve see the it. Pan Am thing. Like the new one still has. It takes place like even further into the future. Yeah, and they still have these Pan Am advertisements, which is kind of brilliant in a way because you can't say Pan Am doesn't come back. <laughs> It'll yeah. become a thing again. Well, but it's also, I think the other thing with it is, is it lends itself again to that dystopian feel yeah. of the, wait, Pan Am's a big, uh, the, the best example of the one that I, I can use is sort of a truly, I think, very quick presentation for, dysto- for a dystopian universe is the beginning of Watchmen. Yeah. Which really does a great job of saying, no, wait, this is not the real universe we're in. Yeah. Very it's quickly, right done up front. subtly, too. Like, Nixon wins a third term. Yeah. So, first of all, you know Nixon did not get reelected. <laughs> and certainly there's no such thing as a third term at that point. Yeah. So, you know it's not correct. Yeah, and I think, but, you know, it's, and that's, you know, what, five seconds? You know, in yeah. conjunction with it, and immediately it sets up, no, we're in a dystopian universe. And we're in a dystopian universe that's got some ethics issues. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, I think the reason they chose Nixon is the way it was. Now, obviously, that's you know somewhat from the original comic book and everything else, but it's it's kind of great to see these kind of technical aspects of movies like this where they do really work. And like we mentioned, you know, talking about previously about Annihilation, um, and you know the the sets in Annihilation yeah, are just that, brilliant. That film is all everything in there is very well done. The sound design is well done. The sound design, yeah, the sound design is, is also extremely well, well done. Yes, <laughs> to, the, to the point where I'm going to have nightmares. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, let's talk about the other interesting thing that that you sent to me the other. Day, yes. the Star Wars Always trailer. So this was this was sent to me. I actually encountered it in some of the other media that I encountered. If you have not seen it, get on YouTube and search Star Wars Always. Um, we should say up front, this is not new Star Wars content. Not at all. And it's not official uh, Disney slash uh, Lucasfilm Star Wars content. This is a a fan project, basically. Yeah, it's a fan project, but it's, it's by a guy who's known for doing... Editing, yeah. Um, Topher Grace, Topher Grace. Uh, formerly of that '70s show, and I think he was in um, uh, Ocean's Eleven. I think he had like a, a bit part at the beginning Maybe, of yeah. that when uh, George Clooney is trying to teach him how to play poker. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, but I think the, the key with it is is he does editing. He supposedly does editing just for fun, like you know, it's kind of the things. This well, he's is good. Really unofficial, but he is very good at it. And what he does is he edits. All of the Star Wars movies. So I mean, whatever you want to look at as eleven, I guess is the com- correct total as to what we consider well, movies. We three new, three original, three new, uh, three prequels. Oh yeah, no, that's right. Three original, three prequels, two news. What are we up to there? Eight. So eight plus Solo, Solo plus Rogue One. Rogue One. That's ten. What am I so missing? I said it's eleven. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? No. Yeah, that's right. Um, close enough. Whichever way it is, it's 10 or 11. Uh, but it's a lot. It's scenes, a lot to mix together. Yeah. He uses scenes from all the movies. He presents it as a movie trailer. It's a five-minute long movie trailer. So it's obviously well, he also a uses long movie trailer. unused scenes. There's a bunch of scenes yes. from Star Wars involving Luke and Biggs, Biggs on yep. Tatooine uh, where Luke's looking up and watching the battle in the sky. They're mostly finished scenes, but you can tell they're rough cuts. Yep. What I also think is interesting is he uses quite a bit of the special editions. He does, yeah. Um, which I thought was an intriguing thing. But there's... It, the comment with it is is that he presents it as sort of the Star, Way, Star Wars being an entirely one saga. Yeah, as an entity. As an entity. And it's so well done. And he does some just fantastic cuts of the way things work together. The one I shot you in particular, which is you watch it, um, it's it's the Yoda voiceover with, you know, no, there is another. Yep. Um, you know, to Ben Kenobi. In conjunction with it, you hear that voiceover and the immediate jump cut is to Ray. Mm-hmm. And it's like... It's really well done. That's so well done. It's like, it's just a brilliant presentation of this there's, way there's of sort of making this. There's one spot in there where he, inter, he intermixes Obi-Wan Kenobi's lines from the original movie yeah. with somebody else's lines and I forget who. But uh, there are two scenes that have nothing to do with each other. and they're Kylo Ren's actually? I think they were Kylo Ren's. Yeah. And they're made and filmed 
filmed like decades apart, but they blend together seamlessly. It's it's really well done and worth your time uh, to to check out. Yeah, I would definitely check it out and see what it is. And again, it's I think it's fun. We're just talking about you know sort of the the less appreciated things of editing. This is all editing. It's all basically footage. Now, yes, yeah, some of it's special edition footage. There's some of it which is probably you know secondary DVD footage. I think the bigs is on some of the special edition. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah. this just occurred to me. We ought to be getting a teaser trailer for Nine pretty soon, right? That comes out in December, I think. Presumably, it? yes. Um, I'm pretty sure that one's December, um, and I think the teaser trailer for Last Jedi. I, I seem to recall I was at an event in April when when that teaser trailer first came out. Maybe okay. that was for Rogue One, but sometime in the next few months we ought to be getting something because I know primary filming has ended. Yeah. Because John uh, Boyega on his Twitter feed, I, I follow him and other people who are in Star Wars. <laughs> involved in Star Wars. <laughs> um, he had tweeted a, a picture of him and. And uh, Disney, uh, uh, Daisy Ridley, and uh, um, Oscar Isaac's on set on the last day of filming, which looks like it takes place on Jakku. So I guess they go back there or some yep. other. Maybe it's Tatooine. Well, you've got to have something on Jakku, I think. Something has the, to be on a sand planet because yeah. Star Wars. So. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars. Yeah, so I know, uh, you know, primary uh, filming has ended and they're in post now. So we should be getting something in the next few months for, as far as a teaser trailer goes. So be be looking for that. Yeah, but yeah, I think um, it's it, it's definitely worth your time to look for. I mean, I, I like fan projects. A lot of times it can be kind of fun. This is one that I think just, it really shows sort of, I think, great trailer design and also just generally as to what it is. I like trailers. Yeah. I always commented about it that, I mean, the episode, the first episode one teaser trailer is a brilliant piece of I film I got editing. so excited and I was so disappointed. <laughs> I know, and I think that's everybody's thing. Like, watching that teaser trailer, like, chills go up your back. You're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be such a great movie, and then it's not. Yeah. Um, and you really see stuff like that. I mean, the first time I remember seeing the Independence Day, you know, Super Bowl ad, mm-hmm. everybody's like, you know, oh my goodness, what is this going to be about? You know, and that's a movie that, I think Independence Day is good. It's far from a great it's movie. Silly. It's silly. Um, it's, it's silly. It's, it's the sci-fi equivalent of uh, a comedy. It's an action yeah. Comedy, sci-fi, weird movie. Yeah, it's probably entertainment. It has it has plot holes up the you know. Have uh, you seen the new one yet? The Independence Day. Uh, no, well, I don't forget what it was called. What the new one? Yeah, I didn't. Either. <laughs> I, I've heard it's, it's typical modern stuff. It has to be dark and gritty. And <laughs> no, it's Independence Day. Don't don't <laughs> yeah, it that seriously. way. It doesn't make any sense. Um, well, so one more thing well, before we get to the Carlton Dance uh, case update. I was Googling around to see if there was anything new on the Disney characters for hire case, and I got a bunch of hits back for other companies offering similar types of services, and one of them was live fairy tale characters. And I thought, well, that's a clever way to avoid you know, Disney's trademarks and copyrights. We'll just call them fairy tale characters. But then I clicked the website, and my first impression was, these are not fairy tale characters. These are just ripoffs of all of Disney's stuff. How is this company still in business? So I printed a couple off and, and showed them to Kirk on the way over. And the more we looked at them, the more we found that there were differences. Yeah, there's clear subtle differences. differences. To where they give you the overall impression of the original characters, uh, but the names are different, comically different. We'll talk about some of those. <laughs> Uh, and the costumes themselves are just different enough yeah. that maybe they get around it. So the first one uh, they had was um, a, a guy in a very dark uh, costume that gave the impression of a of a ninja cat of some kind. <laughs> and I showed it to Kirk, and I said, what is that? And he goes, it kind of looks like Black Panther. Maybe it, takes, it looks like Black Panther, but he seemed to be missing his armor. Missing pieces, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's not Black Panther. That's Panther Hero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we had um, a, a blonde woman in a blue and red uh, uh, costume with a cape and a big S on the chest. Um, that is uh, not Supergirl. That is Woman of Steel. <laughs> uh, we had the green muscular guy with the curly hair. That is the Incredible Giant. And then we had uh, some more interesting ones. There was Prince Aladdin, Little Mermaid, and Snow Queen. Which, the thing with those is that's all, you know, yeah. public domain. Yeah, those are all Hans Christian uh, Andersen stories yeah. that are public or domain. Who don't have to work so hard. The uh, one, though, that I thought they did not really pull off was Ollie the Snowman. <laughs> that character is not in Snow Queen, and if it is, it's not shown. It's not, like, visually depicted. Yeah. But that costume looked an awful lot like Olaf. Yeah, it's it's not your traditional snowman, I think, and you get into it. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for the fact that a snowman is a pretty generic, you know, yeah. appearance character. There's a lot of Sansa Fair there. He's going to yeah. have a carrot for a nose. He's going to have probably yeah. three body segments. But. You got you got a lot of Frosty, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, Frosty the Snowman looks, although you know, a lot of times I think when you get into sort of what's a scene affair of a snowman, they don't have feet. You know, they, yeah, they have usually. a bottom, you know, a bottom yeah. snowball that rolls around. Interesting argument whether the amount of creativity required to give the impression of somebody else's idea without actually copying it 
is pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> at least I'm not, but the, the talent, at least. I can't do that. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting thing to sort of get into it. I think it's really if you get into something like, um, you know, let's, let's just throw out Prince Aladdin, you yeah. know, which obviously, you know, Aladdin is an, an ancient work, you know, from uh, you Oddly, know, Arabian Nights. I thought that Prince Aladdin looked the least like the Disney character of any of the ones that we looked at. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also one of those things where, you know, there's a lot of scenes of fair and just what is a lad, what does a genie look like, yeah. you know, so to speak. I mean, they almost always have sort of the billowy gossamer type, you know, clothing. Yeah, you know, sort of stuff so the like goatee, that. yeah, sort of the elfish ears is kind of yeah. a common feature. The, yeah. the wristbands, the, they keep them imprisoned. Yeah, the imprisoning sort of things. And again, some, some of this is, you know, it's stuff from the original story, so you're obviously, you know, that's going to be public domain I assume it is. I've never stage. actually read Arabian Nights, I don't know. Yeah, I've never read Arabian Nights either, but you know, it's, you can encounter Arabian Nights all over the place. I mean, it used to be more than you can now, I mean, you know, there was, you know, the, um, the Aladdin Hotel you oh, know, in yeah. Las Vegas, yeah. you know, which I stayed in, actually. I, I loved the Aladdin Hotel. It was a great place to stay. Um, you know, there's the uh, Arabian Nights, like, medieval times, dinner shows. That's right, yeah. You know, there's all sorts of things that are it's based been upon done, Aladdin. like, long you know. before Disney did it. Yeah, and, and stuff like that. And so the idea that, you know, there's a Prince Aladdin out there and they have these general looks— you know, again, we talked about the idea of like docudramas and historical yeah. looks. These are things that are docudramas and historical looks. I mean, Aladdin has such Even a Little Mermaid. There was a 1980s <laughs> adaption of that <laughs> yes. um, God, with Tom Hanks and I forget who else was in that. I remember, it's pretty terrible. If I remember really, my my sister loved it and watched it all the time. And okay. I, from that alone, I learned to hate it. <laughs> I'm also convinced. All I remember is that the mermaid didn't have a name, and uh, and she used the name Madison because they happened to be standing on Madison Avenue when Tom Hanks asked her what her name was. Okay. And then um, you know, years later, a generation of women had girls named them Madison. And I'm convinced <laughs> that's why they all saw Splash. <laughs> that makes sense, yeah, as to you know what it would be. Actually, no, Splash, is, Splash is a good movie. Now that I think about it, I was thinking, no. isn't there another actual Little Mermaid? There, there, was, there was a more recent one that was made that was a live action, okay. um, but I, I don't know if it came out or what happened to okay. it. But it was not. I think it was to, like a straight to video one, or you know, that could be. It was a bunch of sequels too, but yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Carlton uh, or the Fortnite Carlton dance case. I think I think possibly the same day or the day after we recorded and talked about this at length, uh, there was a development. So yes, there was. Don't be surprised if the minute you listen to this, it's already out of date. <laughs> uh, so after our last episode, uh, evidence surfaced in the litigation that the copyright office had denied registration on the Carlton on grounds that it was too simple. It's just hip sways and hand gestures, and that's not enough to qualify it as a choreographic work. Uh, eligible for copyright protection under the Copyright Act. And uh, I think it was provided in connection with motions to dismiss. Yep. Um, so two things. One, it was denied registration. And then two, uh, the I, I assume it's take two or epic or whoever the defendant is, is trying to get the case dismissed on those grounds. But we talked about this. The mere fact that the Copyright Office has said no does not necessarily end the issue. Yeah. Now, you can obviously fight the Copyright Office on this issue. I mean, I've filed my own copyright registrations on behalf of clients, and I have done this. Mm -hmm. um, you can go back to the Copyright Office and say, no, I think your interpretation is wrong. Um, here's why it's entitled to copyright protection stuff along those lines. So you obviously have you know, issues like that. The other thing we've definitely got with it is as well, we talked about that maybe the copyright in the dance, but there's also the issue of the copyright in the, the video copyright itself. copyright in the video, yeah. Um, which is not necessarily subject to this, you know, yep. let's see where it goes. I think but a lot does, of the, does does Carlton own the copyright to the video? Yeah, and that's where we're going to bump Probably into, not, you know, the right? issues of, yeah, where does this stand? Where does this lie? We so he's the wrong repeatedly. Yeah. Um, you know, last episode. But yeah, those are the kind of things I think you've got, you know, it doesn't mean that this is over yet. Um, there's some still potentially pending issues out there. I mean, this could still drag on for a year, even if this mm -hmm. is found, found non-registrable. The interesting thing I think about it is that this was the Carlton, so obviously now the Floss, which is a much simpler dance. Yeah, um, I, don't like, I don't like their chances. <laughs> yeah, you've got to wonder if that's, you know, if the Carlton's not registrable, that's almost certainly not registrable. Yeah. Um, so then we're going to bump into, you know, have a, but then it sort of bumps into, well, what is registrable? when it comes to a dance, you know, do we have an indication of where it needs to go beyond the Carlton? And I think that'll be an interesting question going forward, again, assuming that this denial of registration is upheld by the, co the Copyright Office and is ultimately upheld by the courts because yeah. you can challenge the Copyright they, they may have responded already. We don't actually have, this is a whole separate issue, but it, it's weird. Patents and copyrights, if we wanted to, Kirk, we can just go right now and look up the prosecution status of most cases and yeah. see where they stand. At, 18 months after they're filed in conjunction with patents. Yeah, um, and trademarks are just A week or so of them tried for the yeah. Like trademarks. But the yeah, copyright, copyright prosecutions not. are not, but it's not that, not that they're not public records. If we were in D.C., we could go down to the copyright office and pull up the files and do whatever we wanted, right? Uh -huh. You take a look. Uh, they wouldn't tell you no. 
Um, I mean, because it's all public information. Yes, it's public information. They just don't have anything technical online to do it through their website, but the trademark and patent offices do. Yep, and there's been a lot of talk of modernizing the copyright office yep. and, and needing to go to things like that. But yeah, it's... Again, a lot of it is is it's these are public records, but how public they are, you know, they're public as of 1950, yeah. um, you know, and so it's interesting to sort of say what we say what's public then and what's public now is very different. I mean, there's huge amounts of public records out there that people don't realize exist as public records. Mm-hmm. You know, you want a hearing from the FCC, you know, a lot of those are public records, but I wouldn't expect you to, be able to find them, any of them online. Um, now some of them you can, obviously, but, you know, not yeah. necessarily all of them. Yeah, the federal agencies vary wildly as far as how much stuff they put online, and, that, and that's where a lot of the, like, you know, the administrative work all gets done. You know, Congress Congress doesn't do any of this stuff. They just pass laws, and they delegate all of the rulemaking and enforcement authority and, and the adjudicatory authority to these offices, the Copyright Office and the, the Patent and Trademark Office and the FTC, et cetera. And then they, they issue rules, and then they they indict people. They call people in and, and, and institute proceedings and call people in to answer for, for what they've done and, and apply the rules. Yeah. And it's if, if you don't know how to find that stuff and how to navigate those those procedures, then it's easy to get lost and it's hard to even know where to look for a lot of that yeah, stuff. It's, it's one of the things that I think is really interesting is that these systems have, and I think this is something you encounter a lot in, in a lot of legal regulatory schemes particularly, um, these systems have oftentimes very good documentation, very good you know, search engines, even though recognizing the search engines maybe card catalogs and older style things that exist out there for these. But if you don't know who to ask, where to look, and what this, how the system works, they're, they're impenetrable. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you understand how the system works, they're you can easy, access yeah. virtually anything you want to. Um, and I think that's it is sort of an interesting thing we talk about the idea of the relay of information. You know, we've all gotten very used to Google. And the ability to just type a question into a search engine or say what you're looking for and it returns a result to you. But a lot of these systems, you have to know a little more of what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, law generally is that way, but I think particularly when you talk about regulatory mechanisms, you know, these regulatory agencies, if you work in front of these regulatory agencies, you can find anything you want. I mean, I yep. can immediately find patent records. I mean, I work with them every day. But somebody handed the Patent and Trademark Office's webpage may not be Wouldn't able to find stuff to immediately because they don't know what they're looking for or how to search for it. Even people given a patent. I mean, if, if you have an issued patent, it's going to have a, a publication number, the application number, and the patent patent number. And if you don't know what all those things mean, it's hard to understand which, you know, it's got an issue date, a filing date, a priority date, a publication date. And all those dates have different meanings under the Patent Act. And people who don't practice in patents can't tell which ones are important for which purposes. Yep. And if you try to go it on your own, you're highly likely to screw that up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's the thing with it. And again, it's, you know, there's there's some interesting stuff in conjunction with the regulatory stuff that's out there and what you can find in conjunction with regulatory. I think it's also where, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody's talking about this. As we come about, you know, the copyright was denied. There was huge amounts of press coverage talking about yeah, the case. Everybody covered the filed. case when it got filed. And then I saw, this was on CNN, but it was, it was a couple paragraphs. It was a short, short article that just said, and and the, the denial itself, I mean, I don't know when it happened because I don't have a copy of the, the, the paperwork, but... Presumably, the defendants got that in discovery. You know, they must have asked for a copy of that stuff because it's not otherwise available to the public, so they couldn't yep. get it themselves. So who knows how long, uh, you know, the plaintiffs could have known this was denied before yeah. they even filed well, the case. It, it could have been denied previously. I mean, this could be yeah. something based on a prior attempt at registration, not even the current attempt at registration. We don't know. So Yeah, I mean, the copyright office is running anywhere from a couple months to, to many, many months behind <laughs> on, on these things. So if they issued a denial already then the case must have been filed, I would guess, at least six months ago. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about patents. Uh, That's going to be the focus of today's video game discussion. Uh, how patents interact with video games, and uh, I think on the whole, the answer is not very much, usually, unless hardware is involved. Yes, I think that the thing you get into, I think, in conjunction with patents in video games, for the most part, is patents in video games tend to be hardware. That's not to say there aren't patents on video games related to gameplay. Um, you know, we They're about comparatively as, rare, though. They're comparatively rare, and usually when you're talking about it, it's somebody trying to get at sort of specific elements of specific kinds of gameplay. Um, I know there was just an announcement talking about real-time strategy games, which unfortunately I didn't get a chance to look at that to see yep. what was the, the issue in conjunction with real-time strategy games. But most of the time when you're talking about patents in video games, you're talking about some aspect of, pa- of hardware to operate the video games. 
which when you re- hit the point of it, when you talk about a video game console or a video game controller or any piece of hardware associated with video games, we are talking about an electronic machine that's no different from a toaster. So when yeah. most people say, is a toaster patentable? Of course it is if it makes toast differently. So a video game console, to the extent that it plays video games differently, is also clearly patentable. So let's, let's talk about one specific patent, and we're not going to say what this is just yet. I'm going to read the abstract of the patent. And those of you who've listened have know that we generally try not to read things to you, but I don't know any way to introduce this without reading this abstract. <laughs> So, this is also, keep in mind, we talked about patent stuff with this. This is the abstract, not the claim. Yeah, this is not what the patent actually covers. It's just the short description of what the general subject matter is. And this is probably going to take me about 20 seconds to get through. So here you go. You tell me what this is. A four-directional switch, which can be turned on and off in four directions, seems redundant, which comprises a base plate having a plurality of electrodes formed thereon, a key top having an indication showing predetermined for pressing directions in an identifiable manner, a support member constituting a fulcrum between the base plate and the key top, a plurality of conductive rubbers disposed opposing to the plurality of electrodes, so as to be in electrical contact with corresponding ones of the electrodes, and a sustaining member having the plurality of conductive rubbers fixed thereto, and having elastic force for sustaining the conductive rubbers so as not to be in contact with the electrodes when the key top is not pressed. Kirk, what is it? I know what it is because I'm looking at the you know, yeah. like patent thing here. But <laughs> it's, it's the NES, <laughs> it's the NES keypad. keypad. Yeah, and patent number 4687200. The, the one thing I'd say with it is I think the one thing that potentially gives it away is the four directions yeah. and specifically yeah. being four directions. But notice what they're, what they're talking about. We're not talking about a gamepad. It's a four-way switch. It's a four-way switch, yes. It doesn't matter if it's in a gamepad or not. If you build a switch the same way that they've patented, yep. then it's covered. Now, I think one of the elements of related particularly to conjunction with this in video games is they specifically say that it, the, uh, the key top has in Indication showing predetermined four pressing directions, mm-hmm. which implies some arrows. Yep. Um, with it, which for a standard four way switch, I'm not sure you'd necessarily Probably wouldn't need have a, it. A light switch doesn't have arrows pointing up yeah. and down. Yeah, it wouldn't have it unless um, it's you know, manually operable in some way. Yeah, but you know, it's the thing that I actually love to do, and it's anybody who's ever taken a patent class from me, I, I teach, I've taught patent agency classes before, uh, patent drafting classes to sort of everybody that, that's potentially interested. And also, I do presentations just for business people doing patents. One of the things I love to do as part of one of my patent presentations is I pop various uh, claims up and ask people to say, you know, what does this thing cover? And one I love to put up is an electromechanical device, um, you know, having arm, you know, an arm and a, and a connected fulcrum and things like that uh, for transmitting information. And I ask people what this thing is. And the answer to it is, if you know, it's a Morse code clicker. I'll say it sounds like a telegraph. Yeah, it's a Morse code clicker is what it is. And it's actually is from Samuel Morse's patent. Um, in conjunction with it, but I always ask you, what is this thing directed to? And, you know, I on a somewhat regular basis will get people who figure out it's a telegraph, it's something connected to it. But the number of other uh, answers I get, which are all very reasonable, things mm-hmm. like it's a cell phone, um, you know, things like it's it's a radio. I mean, these are perfectly reasonable answers when you read this, but they're clearly not what's being talked about here once you sort of understand the context that it's in. This is a good example. You know, as you said, this is a switch. We don't recognize that if you were to read this without saying anything about video games, you wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily recognize this has anything to do with video games. You just look at it and say, wait, this is a switch. It's some kind of, you know, wall switch for a light, something like that. Um, so again, I think it's a it's a very useful exercise to sort of realize when people talk about this is what a patent covers and sort of what it is. Reading it, you don't necessarily immediately get that. Yeah, and I think people misunderstand, because this was something that was raised to me by somebody in our local game dev community and said, can you talk about uh, the, the patent on that on that, uh, that D-pad? And, um, and so that's why we're bringing this up. And it, it's interesting because I, I kind of assumed they maybe had a design patent on that. I would have yeah. thought a four-way switch existed. I mean, it, do, it do, does exist, but not in a particular way that, that they've claimed. And this this case, so this a was— A lot of this, I think, what probably got this for them is probably those conductive rubbers. Yeah. Um, is probably what got it because that's an intriguing concept of the idea of it being resilient bounce back and that it being conductive rubber, which is not a that's real not common yeah. thing. Yeah. So this case was filed on August 5th of 1983, and it took four years to get through the patent office. The patent issued uh, in August of 1987, and I did look at the claims, and, and they, they do track this pretty well. It's about a combination of the specific shape and contour of the pad. The claims also include the aspect that like it has a dip in the middle, so it's more ergonomically comfortable. And it's, it's really more about how the elements can be manually manipulated to temporarily open and close these various electrical connections, which are just the signals that are sent to yeah. the NES machine to know which button you're pushing. Well, and the real key to it is keep in mind, you could push more than one of these, you could push yeah. one of them, you have to really get these signals 
rights to yeah. be able to provide infinite direction. And so, you know, this case issued in 1987. So, Kirk, how long did it last? It's gone. It's gone now. Um, so it would have depended because back in 1987, we would have been pre the change in law. Yep. So this would have been 17, 17 years from years. issue or 20 years from date of filing. Plus patent um, extension. Plus patent extension, whichever was longer. So we would have to assume in this case, it probably would have been 17 years from date of issue. I checked. Um, it expired in 2005. Yep. So yeah, 1987 plus 17 years plus term extension, which would take us probably into 2005. Yep. So if so, you know, during that time period, uh, query, can Sega and PlayStation and uh, and uh, Xbox, can they make game controllers that have uh, four-way switches that work the same way as this one? That depends exactly what the claims are. Presumably, no, because yeah. it's structurally, you know, they have to have, if they have these conductive rubbers, they have this structure as to what it is. The answer is no. They still had to design their joysticks to work differently yeah. or pay Nintendo a license fee to do this. And again, keep in mind, prior to this, you know, prior to, to, to the NES D-pad, when we have it, we have the Atari joystick. Yeah. You know, which, which is also, also a multi-way, multi-way switch. switch. Yeah. We have the Intellivision track, you know, track wheel on the bottom of that or whatever that was called at the time. It's not called a track wheel. That's the, yep. the iPad term. Um, but the you know the 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 disc that was on the bottom of that was mm-hmm. a disc of something disc, um, which in some sense is also a joystick. Instead of pushing the the joystick sideways and having that push the edge down, you physically pushed the edge with your thumb, mm-hmm. which allowed you to slide with it, which was the the real key of the disc. I had an I had an Intellivision system. I loved it. Uh, played the heck out of it for a lot of years, um, and I used to love that controller. Because it was mm-hmm. so powerful. I remember when I first went to the, uh, I got a, a people that I never owned a, an NES, but some of my friends did. The first time I used an NES controller, I'm like, why can't I slide my finger? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I literally didn't like the NES controller you because I understood. couldn't move it. Did you ever use the the two way paddles on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred? It was just a handheld paddle and just had a dial that turned left and right. And that's oh, all sort it of did. vaguely, yeah. And, so you got the paddles came with the Atari, but you also got the regular joystick with the one button. Yeah, the joystick already goes left and right. So why would you ever want to use the paddles? Yeah, I, I think it was wasn't it that. because of like uh, games like Pong, where you specifically are doing I, linear I motion, guess, or like the circus game had used those too. It never made any yeah, sense. Yeah, like Space Invaders, where you're specifically doing linear motion because the problem with yeah. the joystick is you could move it up and down, which had no control yep. if you're just doing purely linear motion. Would be my guess. Well, so I'll I'll try and, and tweet out like a, a reference to this patent so you guys can take a look at it. So watch our Twitter feed for that. But if if you look at the patent. And the the controller that they show in the drawings looks nothing like an NES controller. It's yeah. very different. And this is an important point that Kirk and I talk about a lot. People often talk about whether a product is quote-unquote patented. Do you have a patent on that? And I think it's a bit of a misnomer because you don't actually, strictly speaking, patent a product. Yeah. You patent the idea behind yeah, you it, pr- right? You patent, you patent inventions. And that's what you always yeah. got to remember. Is in, you know, patents are two inventions to, you know, um, to claims, for lack of a better yeah. term, is what it is, which could be a structure, a method, or anything along those lines. It's not specifically to a product. I think the reason why people a lot of times refer to it as a product patented is because of the marking requirements. Yes. Which is that the, the patent office does require you to mark products covered by the claims as patented or as covered by the particular yeah. patent number. Um, that's a notice scheme. So somebody yeah. who looks at your product, looks at that and says, oh, there's a patent on this. I effectively need to review the patent before I can copy this. Yeah. And that way, if I copy it, if there's no notice and I copy it, it's hard to say I did something immediately purposefully wrong. Yeah, how was I supposed to know it was patented if you didn't tell me? Now, you still do still violate it, but the issue with it is is that for purposes of getting damages, for purposes of saying it's willful, the person is assumed not to have notice because there was no notice on it. Whereas if you put on the product, so if you actually put on the back of the the controller, hey, this is covered by the following patents, you now have noticed that it is, you should go look at those, review them, and determine whether or not the aspects you're copying are covered by those patents. So it's a difference between, you know, I go buy a product, right now at you know Target or Walmart or yep. whatever and I look at the box and there's no there's no patent markings and so I go make a company and we start making the same thing yep. and then two years from now a guy says hey I've got a patent on that uh, you, owe me, you owe me royalties for all these products you've sold. And I'd say, no, I'd, I had no idea. I had no reason to know. You didn't mark your product, so I, I'm not on notice. Yep. And that's I still exactly have to stop at that point, but yeah. Yeah, you can still get going forward infringement because it's him walking in and saying, you infringed my patent, here it is. Yeah. Now you do have notice. So going forward, you have those issues. Notice is actually one of those, I think, sort of legal concepts. And, you know, we paradoxically throw legal concepts into this podcast that are just sort of general. Notice is a good one. Notice is sort of that idea in, in legal stuff that basically says... You have to have some idea that what you're doing is a problem. Yeah. Um, And if you really have no idea that what you're doing is a problem, it's very hard to say, 
that you're liable for doing it until somebody tells you it's a problem. It's a fundamental aspect of due process. You're entitled yeah. to two basic things. Notice of what you're accused of doing wrong and the opportunity to defend yourself. Yeah. So that's the idea is that when you get into these ideas of patent notice, what the purposes of these sort of notifications, and you'll see it, young products all the time, you see patent numbers yep. placed on the products all the time, Usually designed is to provide patents. notice that somebody looking at my product and saying, hey, this thing's cool, but I could redesign it better. Oh, look, there's a patent. To go and say, well, let me load that patent, which is a public document, which yep. is available very publicly from the United States Patent and Trademark Office, particularly if you have the number. Um, that's about the easiest way to search. I mean, Google now has a patent search engine yep. they've had for a number Pretty of years. Good. It's relatively easy to get a patent number to load the search and to find out what it is. You can go look at it. You can determine what it is. Now, whether or not that means you can really understand what does the patent cover, what, are the, what is the claim scope, things like that is a whole other question. But for purposes of notice, it really says, you know, yes, you provided with notice. We've warned you that there is a patent out there. Now it's on your head as to whether or not you've looked at it and, and made that determination and whether or not that determination was made in good faith. Whereas if somebody just says, hey, I've got a product and I'm not going to tell you that it's patented, they can't sort of spring it on you later and say, oh, yeah. guess what? It was gotcha. patented. Yeah. I got you for what you did a year ago. And it's, well, how would I have ever known that that kind of thing, you know, it occurred? That's the same thing for the copyright notices. Maybe that's where some of the plagiarism uh, misconception comes from is, oh, if I put a copyright notice and attribute the person who owns it, then I'm fine. That's not what the notice is for. It's not, yeah. I mean, there, there's an attribution, you know, uh, you can do and that's nice, but that's not why we put copyright 2019 on, on things that are copyrighted. It's to tell other people this is copyrighted, so don't uh, don't take it. Uh, well, one and so an interesting point with that too is that the you know the patent does not have to be coextensive with what we call the commercial embodiment, the yeah. actual thing we're sold or selling, and they usually aren't. In this case, it's just you know how this one four way switch works. Um, and there's uh, nothing about buttons. There's nothing, no A B buttons yeah, here. Nothing even about games necessarily. Switch. Yeah, and then the power of the patent really is its breadth, uh, breadth, B-R-E-A-D-T-H. Uh, the patent can cover a lot of things because you are protecting the the invention in the abstract regardless of how it's implemented, yep. provided that it just it practices all the elements of the claims. Yeah, as we say, you know, it's a, the, a mouse trap is not patented, you know, as a particular, you know, wooden board and a metal spring. It's patented as the idea of like a swinging lever arm that's controlled by a biasing mechanism, yep. you know, sort of things like that. It's it's the concept of saying the way I catch the mouse is when the mouse hits a trigger, something smacks it. <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of the, the the basics of what you're usually getting into. Um you know, in conjunction with with what is the, the the power of the patent, I think the other thing to keep in mind, though, and I think it's one of those things you mentioned earlier with this, a lot of people get really tied up in the fact that they look at the patent and say, "But the drawings don't show the end product," and the answer to it is, is it doesn't have to, and oftentimes it doesn't because oftentimes the drawings are generated from precursor devices yep. or are generated from somebody who came up with, "Hey, I've got this idea of a switch. We don't really know how we're going to implement it yet, but I have this thing that we have to have a four dimensional." Switch. Switch. Would this thing have, you know, four arrow keys on top of it? Would it have a disc on top of it and just have this being the underlying structure, which when you push on the disc depends on which pieces of it go down? There's lots of different ways you can potentially implement this. And uh, quite frankly, I think that tangles people a lot in patents. For sure. Where they look at a patent and they say, that's, they look at figure one and go, but that's not what I'm making. And the issue it is, is that's not the scope of the patent. And they, or they read the abstract and say, but that's not what I'm making. And again, that's not the scope of the patent. The scope of the patent is the claims and what is claimed in conjunction with it. And so when you start looking at what is the patent, what does the patent cover? What is a patented product? Do I infringe a patent by making another product? You're never going to say what I am doing is exactly what's in the patent. Yeah. It's always going to be some issue of, you know, hey, do you have all the claimed elements or not? You probably have additional elements um, over what the claimed elements are. You may have elements that, you know, are arguably changed. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is, are they changed enough? And again, when you then compare it to a picture where the picture may have nothing to do with necessarily what the end product looks like, which is covered by the patent or certainly yeah. to be covered by the patent. Well, people also misunderstand the thing that you ultimately sell doesn't have to practice the patent for the patent to be valid. Yes, that's true. You know, I've, I've, I get that question every once in a while, like, well, will this patent cover my next generation of the product? The, the better question is, will this patent protect somebody else from making my next generation <laughs> of the product? Because yeah. that's really what you want it to do. You don't need the patent office's permission to improve on your own product and move forward. Yep. And you don't even need your old patent to cover it. But if it doesn't, somebody else can potentially copy the new one if they can avoid practicing the patent as already written. Yep, and that's, and that's sort of the coverage of it. You know, when does it cover by it. Um, the, the other thing I think you've always bump into with people like having trouble of, you know, again, what, you know, what is it? Is it's connecting the patent to the product. And I think a lot of people look at it and say, 
what we sort of said earlier, is the product patented? And the answer to it is, is that's not really accurate. It's effectively, yeah. is the product covered by the claims of a patent? So for the for the Nintendo gamepad, you'd put on there U.S. patent number and then this patent number, and then whoever wanted to make a gamepad would, would know to go look up what the patent is, yeah. and anybody who knows what they're doing would immediately recognize what part of it it covers. It doesn't cover the A-B button and things like yeah. that, or the particular layout. There's nothing patentable in there. Yeah, or the, ele- the, the electronic communication scheme of how the, yeah. the signals are communicated, whatever the encoding might be. You know, Those are the kind of things that you, you bump into as to what exactly does the patent cover. But again, I think when you hear it a lot of times in the, pre- in the popular press, you'll hear people say, oh, they patented the game controller. No, they patented a switch. Yeah. You know, and that that switch is a fundamental part of the game control. I mean, you look at the idea of the D-pad and say, would the D-pad have been the D-pad without this switch? No, it wouldn't have been. Yeah. It would have worked differently. But there are other ways to implement a multi-way switch. Joystick. Yeah. I mean, we already had them. We had arcade games before we had the Nintendo D-pad. We had the Atari controller. These things existed. They were just developed differently. Like, the underlying technology that makes it work is just different. And, And then other companies designed around it. And it's sort of a it's 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 widely misunderstood because you, you hear these patents get issued and there's all this outrage in you know the the tech press about the absurd the absurdity of these these broad patents that cover things that we've all known about forever. Nintendo got a patent on the gamepad. Why we've already had those? No, you didn't. You didn't have this gamepad. You had other gamepads, and likewise, you can make new gamepads that might even be better yeah. that don't infringe this patent, which is exactly what happened. Yep, and and I think that's a, again a lot of what you. You sort of bump into is you bump into a lot of the sort of tech outrage about it is people not necessarily understanding exactly what the scope is they effectively too quickly connect this patent to this product either because the numbers on it um, or because of whatever you know it might be that they're they're seeing where they want to see is sort of a, something that's overly broad. There's a little confirmation bias, yeah. right? If you hate the patent system and you hear about a patent that sounds absurd, it just confirms to you, yeah. right, that, that you were right. And again, I sort of talk about like presentations. I do one of the ones I always talk about is it's I always talk about the thing and say, you know, we all are aware, and I mean, you can go and you can see the original patent, you know, specimen that was provided that Thomas Edison patented the light bulb. And the answer is no, he did. There were actually light bulbs patented before he ever filed for his own patent. And there's been thousands of patents filed since he got his patent on light bulbs. Mm-hmm. And, and the example I always use with it is I say, since Thomas Edison got a patent on the light bulb, he got a patent on this. And I show a, a, a drawing of a compact fluorescent. And it's, no, of course no, he did Of course didn't. not, yeah. You know, it's a totally different technology. But we look at it and say he invented the light bulb. And the answer is no, not really. Um, really, he invented a particular form of light bulb. In many respects, the most important thing Thomas Edison invented about the light bulb was the socket it went into. Yeah. <laughs> um, more so even than the light bulb. Um, and there's a reason why they're called Edison sockets. Um, but, you know, it's, it's those types of things where I think a lot of people, when they look at the patent system and they say, hey, this patent covers this, this is what somebody invented, again, they readily jump from patent to product. And it's not something you really want to do. It's not a do. clean leap every time. Yeah, it's not a clean leap. It's, it's actually very rarely a clean leap. Let's talk about one more thing Nintendo tried to do to protect their controller. Uh, we said the patent expired in 2005, but that was not actually the end of this. Uh, there is one form of IP that lasts potentially forever, Kirk. What is that? That would be trademark. The trademarks. And we've talked about how uh, we, we've speculated, I should say, that we think one reason Disney has started to use a clip of Steamboat Willie as their logo at the beginning of films Their, their Disney is, animation logo. Yeah, it's a, get what's called acquired distinctiveness in the clip so that Steamboat Willie will essentially be trademarked forever. Okay. Well, at least that, that know, particular three, five two or three seconds, second yeah. clip is to yeah. whatever it is. They'll argue that to use any part of it would be confusing, but, but we'll, we'll fight that battle in about six years. If, if anybody feels like dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think people are just going to stay clear. Uh, but anyway, uh, Nintendo tried something different. In 2015, they filed a trademark registration on the NES controller. The case is 86-565-763. Now, let's keep in mind, this is a trademark application number. That's not a trademark number, and those yeah. are different. You don't yeah, get a is, registration number until it grants. This is sort of an like application the number. Yeah. So this is, and this is not, this is them claiming they have a trademark interest in it. It's not, it's, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of what the prosecution process is going to figure out. Um, the, pat, the trademark office rejected this. They said that it was essentially a non-distinctive configuration of packaging and that to the extent that there was a design, it was ornamentation and not a trademark. And this is sort of why you can't – we sometimes get these questions when people come up with like a hilarious slogan for a T-shirt yeah. and they want to trademark it. You're not supposed to be able to do that. Well, remember, your trademark has to be associated with the goods and services underneath it. So basically yeah. the idea of this is that the trademark, the D-pad the D, the D shape – 
needs to essentially be an indicator of origin of the Nintendo company, essentially for the NES, for yep. video game systems. And you, you can kind of see where that's, where the trademark is probably coming out a little bit. No, it's just the appearance of it. It's the ornamentation of it. It's not actually the indication of it. Everybody knows, however, an NES, we know exactly yeah. what you mean. A Nintendo Entertainment System means this box produced by Nintendo. So Nintendo submitted uh, remarks in response. I'm going to read these as well. They're relatively brief. This is a statement uh, made under oath by Nintendo's trademark lawyer. Through years of investment and promotion by the applicant, Nintendo of America, Inc., as well as through tremendous loyal customer support, the design of the Nintendo Entertainment System controller has become one of the most recognized intellectual properties in the video game industry. I'll stop there. Kirk, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't have any <laughs> doubt whatsoever that I think the NES controller is one it's of iconic. the most recognized yeah. iconic controllers in the game industry. Uh, when consumers encounter the design of the NES controller, they only think of one source, Nintendo. Right Agree. There, well, right there, that's the idea of you know, trying to connect this thing is to the, the trademark has to be an identifier of source. Yep. You have to know that based upon this appearance of this controller, you are talking about Nintendo. Either because it is inherently distinctive or because it has acquired distinctiveness, Nintendo respectfully submits to the examining attorney that its two-dimensional design of the face of the NES controller, including the verbal elements Nintendo Select Start A and B, is a distinctive design mark that warrants registration in connection with Nintendo's Class 28 goods, which is video games. Video games. <laughs> uh, video, it's, it's video games or video game systems. Yeah. No, it's video games. It's video games. Uh, so let's talk about, they mentioned inherently distinctive versus acquired distinctiveness. So there's two different things yep. here. And, and we don't have enough time to go through the spectrum of distinctiveness, but the first argument is that it is, it is inherently capable of uniquely identifying Nintendo as the source of goods. And yep. then he's saying, even if it's not, we've been using it exclusively for so long, everybody associates it with Nintendo. Yep. So th this is the common thing you bump into, you know, and, and anybody who takes trademark law at any form of law school, or even if you go and review like trademark law books or even trademark law on the internet, you will encounter this idea of the spectrum of distinctiveness, um, which oftentimes is referred to as generic descriptive, suggestive, arbitrary, fanciful. Mm -hmm. um, and basically what it says is that certain things just, there's no way they would be associated yeah. with anything. They're inherently incapable them. of uniquely identifying a source because they're just the generic word for something. Yeah, yeah you can have, so the, the one that's always, uh, that's I always commonly sort of jump out is apple for a fruit is the generic name of it. Yeah, I can't trademark a apple. <laughs> yeah, apple is not the generic name for a computer. Um, that right. would be computer. Um, and or, a, so, or a British record label. Yeah. <laughs> to talk about, you know, sort of other interesting <laughs> cases that are out there. Um, but yeah, so you, you kind of bump into those things of saying, hey, we have these networks are just simply totally disconnected with things. The reality of it is the vast majority of trademarks we encounter in many respects fall on the pretty distinctive side. Their names are things that aren't necessarily associated with anything in particular. Yeah. You know, why is the name Burlington associated with coats? Or shipping. Or shipping or anything else? Well, because... Because we associate it with it, you know, stuff heard like it. that. Um, so those are the kind of things that you definitely bump into as to sort of the far end. The other end of it is what are called descriptive or generic marks, which are marks that are not necessarily something that is completely unrelated to what it is. It is somewhat descriptive of it, but it's entitled to maybe become descriptive. And that's the difference between generic and descriptive. Yeah. Descriptive is more like a mark that describes qualities or characteristics of the product. So yeah, the, the example I always use is sharp as applied to knives. Well, that's kind of a word you to describe a knife. It just describes what it is. Yeah. And we don't want people to have trademark rights over that usually because then if anybody else says we have sharp knives and they've infringed a trademark and yeah. that just seems wrong. But the one like I love to pick on and actually I use generally in conjunction with is U.S. Bank. It's yeah. a bank in the United States. So it's a U.S. bank. Banks are famous time, for having terrible names. Yes. At the same time, everybody knows exactly which bank I referred to. As soon as I said U.S. bank, I, it's not like I'm referring to a general banking in the United States. I refer to a particular bank, and we all know it. That's the meaning of acquired distinctiveness. That's a mark where we look at it, and we say, we know which bank it is. So, yes, yeah. it has acquired distinctiveness, even though, arguably, the term U.S. bank is descriptive. It's been used for so long that everybody knows yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, – banks are actually – I always think is sort of one of the best examples of marks which are almost very far on the descriptive end of the scale, but also have acquired a lot of very strong distinctiveness. I think it's such a it's such a pervasive practice to name banks that way that yeah. people just kind of figure, you know, if there's a if there's a first federal national bank, then it's probably different from the first national federal bank. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> and that's you know those kind of things. So sort of, you know, banks are notoriously named. I think there is some regulatory stuff. I don't know banking law, but I think yeah, there I is some either. regulatory stuff about how you have to name banks. But you know, there's you know there's a first bank, there's a second bank, there's a third bank, there's a fourth. 
bank. There's a fifth <laughs> bank. You know, stuff like that. You, you bump into these kind of things where it's like people just can't seem to come up with, you know, reasonable names. But at the same time, we all know which banks we're talking about because they do acquire distinctiveness. And that's, I really like that example of sort of what acquired distinctiveness means because yeah. I think it's very, very clear when you say those kind of things. Again, if I say Bank of America, we all know what I'm talking about. Oh, that is a very clear, distinct bank. Like, like Bank of America, we know is one bank and U.S. Bank is a different bank. Yes. But how different is Bank of America from U.S. Bank as far as what it tells you about the, yeah. it's a bank in the United States. It's a bank in the United States. And so when you look at the idea of the sort of, you know, where those marks that are inherently distinctive, no, those marks are not the inherently U.S. savings and loan, you know? <laughs> yeah, but they are clearly acquired distinctiveness, and I think that's sort of a great example. Again, inherently distinctive marks, a lot of times when people say them, it's, it's a made-up word. Yeah, it's something nonsense. which is Xerox. Yeah, Xerox, which, yeah. or something which is disconnected, like Apple with yeah, computers. It's arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. Well, Nintendo did not win on inherently distinctive, but they did win on acquired distinctiveness, and the examiner said that if they amended their application to say that it was acquired distinctiveness, they could have it, and, and they did. So Nintendo now has a registered trademark on acquired distinctiveness for the design of the controller. So so a uh, question, does this mean that nobody can sell a controller that looks the same? <laughs> well, I think one of the things you bump into is what exactly is the mark covering? And I specifically note the the phrase by the Nintendo attorney, that it's two-dimensional design to the face of the NES controller, including the verbal elements Nintendo Select Start A and B. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely is implying that those are part of the design. Yeah. Um, and so I think. So what if then, you leave them off? Yeah. So then Just you bump into the, the question: What if those are taken off? Um, what if you move the positions of the buttons? You know, this yeah. is where you get into the question of or what change is the this design functional? of the face. Yeah. yeah. I think. I think. I think the scope make it of this vertical is instead of narrow. horizontal. Yeah. I mean, that's the one that I always think. You know, again, t- treat the Intellivision pad, which was vertical, um, as opposed to being horizontal with it. So, can somebody make it sell a controller that is similar? Yes, there can be ones that look similar. But have, you know, sort of different components. There could be ones that use the same components, but they're rearranged. Would those comprise trademark infringement? I think it, then it depends on the eye well, of the if you just disclaimed it. You sold warning that said, not sold by Nintendo of America, Inc. Now yeah. you're into tarnishment and dilution and things like that. Yeah, and I think we also all have, and there's a number of controllers, not even the initial, you know, NES controller, but the sort of more modern NES controllers. There's a lot of variations on those which are sold, many of which have additional buttons, mm-hmm. you know, where it bumps into, you know, is that really something where you can say that's a, you know, an an infringement because it's got different buttons. The buttons are labeled differently. They're positioned differently. Oftentimes, the detriment of the user because you can't figure out where start is, you know, particularly if it's got extra buttons. Um, but those kind of things where you have that, you know, there's there's a functionality argument that all I'm doing is copying the functionality. Yep. And again, borrow, you know, without the patent in place, which we know is not in place for our four-way switch here anymore. Well, that's an important point, too, is that this trademark covers the way that it looks and the way that it's laid out, but it doesn't extend the patent in any way. You can, you can, make, yeah. you can make something that works the exact same way now. Yes, I mean, to use the same way that this patent is expired to the four-way switch, you know, I, I assume there's no continuations, anything else that's they filed in conjunction with it, but to at least that the claims of that patent expired, you know, in 2015, you can build that exact yeah. four-way switch. 2005. I mean, can, 2005, yeah. 2005, sorry. Um, you can literally walk through and build it exactly as it's described in the patent, and there's not a thing anybody Nothing can do to do you. Um, and that's one of the benefits of the patent system. It's part of the goal of the patent system is to say that once this exclusive period has run out, people can build these things. Things. They can improve upon them, um, and that's that's part of the goal of the patent system is to say we want that to be public knowledge. Part of it's because is hey somebody could look at this now and say hey this is a great four way switch. I have a new material that I've just come up with. I can make a really cool eight way switch, which couldn't have been built in Nintendo's time. Mm-hmm. But now that I know how Nintendo built the four-way switch, I know this would work for an eight-way switch, yeah. and here's a better design, and that's part of the goal of the patent system. Yeah, it's it's, it's fundamentally, uh, I mean, conceptually, I should say, it's supposed to be sort of a, a compact between the inventor and the public. You tell us, the public, how it works, and if we want, then we'll give you a temporary monopoly. And in the grand scheme of IP, they're pretty short-lived monopolies. They don't yes. they don't feel like it to us on a day-by-day basis, but uh, they, uh, they, they do end. They do end in our lifetime, which is more than we can say for most other IP rights. Yeah, and it is interesting sort of in the patent realm. You know, we're talking about something, you know, the NES system. Most of us, you know, grew up with. I mean, we definitely grew up with. I mean, to me, it's not even an old system. You know, I mean, Atari and Intellivision are the old systems. Yeah, those you are know, the old Commodore ones. 64, you know. <laughs> Amiga. <laughs> Tandy. Um, you oh, know, don't throw a Tandy. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, let's talk about Radio Shack. Um, yeah. 
is a vestige yeah. from the past. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, those kind of things where we look at and say, those are really old. You know, the Nintendo was the modern version for a while. And yet it's, you know, its patents have run, you know, this yeah, is the run, they ran a gone. decade ago. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, you know, this technology is stuff which is generally out there. And so I think a lot of times when people look at it, they're like, oh, it's so bad that this thing is patented because it's going to run for so long. And the answer to it is, is not really, actually. Yeah, did, did it stop Sega from making controllers? Did it stop us from having even bigger, better controllers that have more, yeah. even easier to use inputs? I mean, I mean, how many people prefer that Nintendo D-pad over like a modern controller? Yeah. I, I do because I'm old school and these new <laughs> controllers are too confusing for an old guy like me. Yeah. But, uh, but you know. I didn't, I didn't even use a controller. I used the screen. I tell you most of the stuff on an yeah, iPad. Yeah, who needs a controller screen? anymore? That's that's dinosauric. You know? All right, well, well, we'll wrap this up and, and get moving along here. I think next time we're looking at bringing in a special guest to talk about a very off-the-beaten-path topic, but we're still <laughs> trying to firm that up. Uh, and then after that, we're probably going to launch into uh, our, our, our long-teased bit on music law. We've had multiple requests from people to get more into music law and how that works and maybe a little bit more on the Modernization Act um, and, and some of the you know nuts and bolts of these copyright issues. So there's the music, and it is time to go. Speaking of music. Yes. If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, criticisms, complaints, remarks, adulations, or rants, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter. That's right, Twitter, at LGGpod, or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. Did you like my crack reference there? Oh, yes. Uh, it definitely wasn't just a Twitter <laughs> joke in conjunction with it. And should we mention, by the way, you know, Twitter is not necessarily modern technology. No, that's also old. They had that when I was in law school. That's really old. <laughs> you can talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. Subscribe to this podcast on one or more of the platforms or all of the platforms. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all of the other places where you go for your podcast content. If you like what you hear, give us a review. Reviews are how we attract more listeners by making it easier for others to find us. You can get me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and Kirk is at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.